Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true God in the springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Command and teach these things. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Fight the good fight of the faith. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Grace be with you all. Well, today is Family Worship Sunday, and I want to do a little giveaway uh, for our kids, uh, a, a child in here. This is a book uh, called That Little Voice in Your Head, and this is great. I read the adult version of this uh, that inspired the children's version, and it's a, it's a great book talking about your conscience. In fact, 1 Timothy has several references to conscience, one being today's text. And so this is about a, a, a child's conscience, that thing that a child talks to themselves about, the thing that kind of makes you feel guilty or makes you feel good about things. And so it's, a, it's an important read, and it's a good reminder for you parents out here to be investing in your children. Uh, these things a lot of times are awkward to talk about, and this can give you a really kind of a, a springboard to be able to discuss and have these type of conversations. And so I'd like to give this away to a child fifth and below. And so if you're fifth and below and you have a birthday in February, raise your hand. Fifth and below, okay, Skyla, anybody else? All right, come on up here, it's yours. And as a little bonus, got a, a free coffee from the Bean, so I know you'll like that too. So you can take your mom there or your dad or both and you can get a, a coffee and read this book together. How about that? Sounds like a good time, doesn't it? All right, thanks. Give her a hand, yeah. Let's pray and we'll look at our text in 1 Timothy. God, we thank you so much for this amazing church that you've gathered here in Bainbridge, Georgia to praise your name and to make you known. And God, I pray that we'll always keep in mind that knowing and following you, Jesus, is what we're all about. We don't gather here because it's the thing you're supposed to do on Sunday. We gather here because we want to hear from you. We want to know your word. And we want to be encouraged and encourage others. And God, I pray that you will help us to fulfill our role as the church. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but it's kind of, kind of strange. You've heard before that maybe sometimes people begin to look like their pets or their pets begin to look like them. But have you ever noticed that like a spouse, spouses can begin to look like each other? In fact, I found, I Googled this and this came up and I thought it was pretty amazing, this picture of various celebrities or people um, who actually begin to look like their spouses. They look like them. They identify so much 
with their characteristics. And so as you look at that for a second, you may think, well, this is happenstance. This is, you know, just a coincidence. It's actually not. There's actually been studies that support this really happens. Now, you think, how could that be? How could people begin to look like each other? Well, the hypothesis goes like this, that over the, share, over the decades, as we share emotions together, as we um, do things together, express our, our emotions together, that we begin to develop similar wrinkles and even similar expressions to one another. And over time, we begin to actually look like each other. And the way we express ourselves begin to look like one another, right? So I don't know, think about our church, think about anybody in here that you think looks like maybe if the guy's shaved their beard, maybe there would be more resemblance, right? But uh, yeah, it, that, it happens. It's true. Studies prove that to be the case. Interesting, right? Well, let me tell you another fact that's true. Churches begin to look like their leaders. Churches begin to look like their leaders. In fact, what a church leadership is in microcosm, the congregation becomes that way as a microcosm, as, as, as a group, collectively. So in other words, words of saying this is, as the leadership goes, there goes the church. Of course, there's always individual exceptions, but generally, the leadership sets the tone and the church takes on the characteristics of its leadership. And so we looked at last week, the elders... And this week we're looking at deacons. And this is a challenge not only to our elders and to our deacons, but this is a challenge to everyone in here for a couple of reasons. One is we saw that Paul said, follow me as I follow Jesus. And he also expanded that past the apostolic influence and said that other people who are following Christ, you should follow them like Timothy, their pastor. And so there's a responsibility that other people are watching you. If you lead a kid's class, if you teach in refuge, if you lead a small group, people are watching you and paying attention to you. And then also, these lists for maturity for leaders aren't just for the leadership. These should be things that everyone aspires to. God wants his, all his children to be mature in the faith. And so we're going to go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 8 through 16 or 15, but I'm going to start actually in verses 14 and 15 and then work our way a little bit backwards in that. So Paul writes in verse 14, if you find verse 14, he says, I hope to come to you soon. And he's writing to Timothy, who's there at the church of Ephesus. Paul sent him there to restore order in the struggling church. But he says, but I am writing these things to you, referring back to the church leadership and what he said so far to the church and the structure of the church. He's writing these things so that if he's delayed, Paul says, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. I'm writing so you'll know how to behave in the household of God. Now, when I was a kid, this verse was thrown around as, here's how children you should act in church, okay? If you're looking at an older version, meaning the King James or NASB, it might say the house, it might refer to like the church as the house of God versus the household of God. Well, he's not referring to a church building, and although any building, we should be appropriate in the way we act kids and the way that we treat the facility. The truth is there's nothing sacred about the building, whether it be a gym or whether it be an amazing high church with a huge steeple. Regardless of what the church looks like, the church, the church building isn't the church. The people who gather together, that's the church. And so he says, 
I want you to know how to act in the household of God. And then he says, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Look what he says here. He says a couple things that are, are so significant, so powerful. He says that we need to remind ourselves of this, that the church, the collective gathering of the redeemed people, those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that we are the church of the living God. And we had to tell ourselves, remind ourselves of that significance and that seriousness all the time because it's easy to forget, isn't it? It's easy just to go through the motions. We go and do church and we forget that we are representing the living God. And Paul is reminding Timothy to remind the church and the household of faith that they are the church of the living God. And as we re embrace that reality, he says another thing. He says, we're a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so as we're talking about leadership, and as we're talking about following leadership, if we're going to see that we are the church of the living God and that we are responsible for the truth of God, and he says that the, the, we're the buttress and the pillar of truth, then leadership matters a great deal, right? Leadership matters tremendously. Now, when Paul uses these metaphors of a pillar or of a buttress, that the people in Ephesus would have had a clear vision of what he was talking about. Probably was referring to the temple of Artemis that was right there in their little town, in, in the town of Ephesus. Little town compared to the big cities of the world today, big according to ancient times. This, this temple had 127 pillars or columns, 60 feet high. And so when he said, you're pillars of the truth, they would have thought about the 127 pillars on the temple. And then when he said, the buttress... That's a word we don't throw around much. In fact, Cleve Dryden told me today, he's an engineer, he said that's a word that's not used too much anymore. It used to be used for bridges. But these were architectural structures used to support, stabilize, or reinforce a wall. And so this idea of a pillar and a buttress, he was getting out the fact that a pillar holds high the standard pillar of truth. A buttress of truth, it supports the truth. It holds the truth firm and tight. And so the local church has in its power to uphold, support, and strengthen the truth, to lift it high by teaching the truth and living out the truth, not only individually, but corporately as a body. And we know that Scripture constantly says that Jesus is the foundation of our church, of every church, every true church. Jesus is the foundation of, it's the household of the living God. And he says, you're to be pillars, lift up the truth, a buttress for the truth. You're to stay strong no matter what's going on in the world, in your community, in your times. Stay strong, hold out the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, Jesus Christ, the foundation. That's our job as a church, as believers. And when it comes to addressing leadership, he knows, Paul knows, the impact and the power that leadership has on the local body. And the church at Ephesus is a mess. It's a disaster because people are teaching false truths, false doctrines. They're leading people astray. They're focusing on things that aren't the main thing. And they've lost their way. Paul's correcting that. There are many people that have 
encountered church experiences. You've been in church over your life. Maybe you're here today, but you've had horrible church experiences, bad church leadership, and basically you find yourself disillusioned with the body of Christ, the institutional church, the organized church. In fact, George Barna's research reveals that a large segment of Americans are currently leaving churches precisely because they want more of God in their own life but cannot get what they need from a local church. That's unbiblical, it's sad, and it's a disaster. First of all, it's a misunderstanding of what your expectations should be of the local church. We're a bunch of sinners who are striving to be more and more like Christ. Are we always going to get it right? Do you? I don't. Our leadership doesn't. But our goal is to keep our eyes on Jesus, to hold up the word, which is the only thing that we have that's infallible, that we can bank our lives on. We can live and surround our family with the truth of the word and know that they can hold on to that regardless of what happens in the world, because it's truth, not just for today, but for eternity. And so we can have a lot of thoughts about what truth is, And we can feel certain ways about reality. But the bottom line is, how do we know anything is true unless we go to God's word? That's how we rest upon truth, what God reveals to us in his word. And so that's why as a church, we must never apologize for holding out, holding up, standing strong for the word of truth, the gospel and the words of scripture. Is that what you build your life upon? which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And deacons have a critical role in this mission of living out the truth. The life and the health of a local church depends upon deacons. The Greek word for deacon means servants. You're a servant to the church. So if you're a deacon in here, your job description is a servant. And just like the elders we talked about last week, Paul doesn't focus in on the qualities and the skills that the world typically looks for in a leader. Paul focuses in on character. God looks for those whose faith has had a tangible impact on their behavior, their lifestyle, and their family. He looks for a man of character. And if you were here last week, as we read through this list, you're going to see there are lots of similarities between the deacons and the elders as far as their qualifications go. Jobs are different, very similar. So look at verse 8 through 10. Paul writes, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And then we're going to skip over verse 11. We're going to come back to it in a minute. Verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Now, rather than spending a lot of time on the details of the qualifications, If you're a deacon and you weren't here last week, please go back and listen to last week's sermon that goes into great detail about the different character qualities that are presented. The key difference between an elder and a deacon when it comes to these qualifications, 
when you really look at the differences between the lists, the deacons are not required to be able to teach. The elders of the church have the responsibility and the giftedness and are empowered to be the teachers of the church. And then the second thing that's different between the two lists, the primary things that are different, the second one is that Paul admits this section where he compares managing one's own household to taking care of God's church. So the difference, the teaching aspect of it, and the managing of the church aspect of it. And besides that, there's really no differences in the qualifications between an elder and a deacon. All right, I know it's easy to think sometimes that the deacons are like the JV squad, right? And maybe one day you'll achieve enough or impress enough, and then you can reach varsity one day and you can be an elder. That's silliness. It's stupidity to think that way, that you're lesser than. The same qualifications, except you're not gifted necessarily, or you may be gifted and not yet have discovered or used that to its fullest, or people haven't identified that yet, but you, the teaching aspect, and God hasn't given you the office yet to manage the church. But what you do matters, and it's very serious, and it's serious enough that Paul takes the time and effort to outline what the qualifications are. I'm going to run through these very, very fast. If you're following along in the app, the, this handout that I, I have right here, the same handout is available there for you online if you'd like to look at it. He says, first of all, dignified. That has the idea that you're respectable, that people look at you and they see somebody they can respect, they can model their life after. The next he says, not double-tongued. You're not two-faced. You're not insincere. You're not saying one thing to one group and then running out saying something else to a different group. Not addicted to much wine. That's obvious. We talked about that last week. You're controlled. You use discipline in this area of life. Not greedy for dishonest gain. This would have been one that was particularly relevant to the deacons because they handled money. They handled the finances of the church, and so they have to be able to be above reproach in that area. Next, he says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They have to be sound in their faith and in their behavior and consistent with their beliefs. They have to be living out with a clear conscience the faith that they've been entrusted. The next one, he says, tested. He has been observed and he's been examined. His track record and his services have been watched over a period of time before he's considered to be a deacon. The next one is kind of like a catch-all, like last week with the elders, the idea of above reproach, but he uses the word blameless for the deacons. Overall, this is a man of impeccable character. The husband of one wife, again, as last week, he's a one-woman man. He's committed to his wife. And then the final one, he's managing his children and his household well. Practically speaking, he's the spiritual leader of his home. He's intentional with his spiritual leadership in the house. And so Paul gives us this list. And besides that, we don't really have a lot for the duties and the responsibilities of what deacons should be doing in a local church. There's a lot of flexibility there. Now, we can go back to Acts chapter 6, where many people think the office of the deacon was created. I don't really think this is necessarily the case, but I do think that this was used for a pattern. So let's go to there, Acts chapter 6. Verses 1 through 4, writing in the early days of the church growth and the church boom. Now in those day, these days, when the disciples were increasing in numbers, a complaint by the Hellenistic, 
and that just means those who were Greek-speaking Jews, arose against the Hebrews because their widows had been neglected in the daily distribution. So the daily giving of food and supplies. And the twelve summonsed the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the church is exploding and it's encountering growing pains. And the apostles were committed to the word. Their job was to preach the gospel, to pray together, to be looking after the spiritual well-being of the congregation as it was growing. This was their primary calling. And so seven men were chosen to handle these other more practical duties that were needed within the church. And again, I said, I, I don't think this was personally the office was creating, created here. I think it was just more of they had to scramble to figure out how are we going to do this job that needs to be done. But it provides a great example and a model for the purpose and duties of the deacon. The biblical role of deacon is to take care of the physical and logistical needs of the church so that the elders can concentrate on their primary duty that we talked about last week. So deacons serve under the leadership of the elders, helping them exercise oversight in practical matters of church life. And because Scripture gives no official or specific responsibilities for the deacons, it's really at the elders, um, uh, whatever they desire to manage and to ask the deacons to do, that's what the deacons should be doing. And so these aren't two independent groups that the two shall never meet in the night. They've got the deacons over here and the elders over here. These Two groups should work in conjunction with one another as the elders are shepherding the spiritual needs and there needs to be some uh, practical needs met, some very, very down-to-earth things that have to happen in this home or in this family. The deacons come alongside and they minister to those things. So God is accomplishing his purpose, seeing people come to Jesus, grow in Jesus, and disciple other people in Jesus. And so we learn from Acts that they picked seven men many years in the church. That was actually the standard that was used. But one thing is clear that we know from this is there were many, many people, thousands of people who were coming to Christ at this point. Seven guys, I promise you, were not able to do all the work. And so it was also their task to recruit other people into work and to organize other people to make sure this job got done. So the deacons not only serve the elders so they can lead, They also serve others and lead others into service opportunities, much like our deacons would do today. They would invite you, hey, come and help with a work day. Or can you help with this need within your group or your your K-group community? Can you serve meals? Can you provide meals? And so they're reaching out to the practical needs. And then look at verse 13. He talks about just the value of deacons. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. What's he saying there? He's saying that when you serve and when you work, you earn the respect and appreciation of the church. That's going to happen. You help somebody in their moment of crisis, their moment of need. There's just a special bond and relationship that happens there. And then he says that they they grow in their sanctification. They grow in their confidence of Jesus 
as they serve others in the church. And that's true for everyone, isn't it? I know that many times when we have to serve other people, the thought of it brings a lot of anxiety. It brings a lot of concern. Am I good enough? Am I going to be able to provide enough? We're just, just flat out, I, am, do I have the energy to pull this off? But what happens when we serve for the glory of God? It never fails that we walk away going, wow, I went to serve and minister to them, but what happened? How many times have we said that? But I feel like I've been ministered to. I've been served. And that's happened to me so many times in hospital visits. And I miss the fact that I can't be in the hospitals right now. Because you go in and you minister to someone who's, who's struggling or even on their deathbed. And, and most of the time I walk out being encouraged by the spiritual conversation that happens. Don't quit serving. Again, you don't have to have the office of a deacon in order to serve and give. That should be part of your normal, everyday life as a believer. To care for one another. To look out for one another. And best done in our K-group communities, so it's manageable. You look around, i got ten people here besides me that I need to care for. I can do that. I can care for this group of people. I can reach out. I can pray. I can do the things that are asked of me. And deacons have the official office. And so the elders come alongside the deacons and say, hey, can you guys get this done? Absolutely. We'll take care of that for you. We're eager to do that. Because why? That's our calling. That's our ministry. That's the office that God has given to us. And it's, it's a good calling. It's a, and I, I gain good standing. And I gain confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That's pretty awesome. And so, deacons, I know sometimes I talk to you like I'm just coming to church early. I'm moving signs. I'm carrying banners. I'm doing stuff that doesn't seem that important. It matters. It matters to our church. Many of the deacons are involved in the setup team every week so you can have a seat when you show up here at 1030 in the morning. That matters. Getting the physical needs of our church met. And, and I love the fact that our deacons have been doing a lot of talk lately about how that they can step up and even serve this church better and be out there in the homes and encouraging the shut-ins and those who are, can't get out right now because of COVID. There's much chatter about that, and that's great. Those are really, really good things. And now back to verse 11, the verse that I skipped. Very interesting little verse here. It says, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, if you're a deacon wife right now, you may think, okay, why is he pulling this out just by itself? Okay, it's kind of scary, right? Is he going to focus in on me? Well, here's why I'm pulling this out. It's interesting, if you were here last week, you know that as he talked about the elders, the shepherds, the leaders of the church spiritually, there was nothing about elders' wives in this passage. There was nothing said about their qualifications, and so the people who are equipped and called to teach the church and to be the primary spiritual role models in the church, why in the world would their wives not be addressed, yet you have the wives of deacons to being addressed? What's going on here? Well, as in a lot of things we read in the Scripture where there's not clarity, there's lots of different opinions, right? In this case... This can be looked at a couple different ways. One can be the fact that the word wives 
can literally be translated women. And the word their, their wives, women, in the literal Greek it just says the women. So some say Paul is addressing women deacons here. Now, we know from Romans chapter 16, there was a lady named Phoebe who was referred to as a deacon. Now, you look at this and you're like, closed case, right? What are we doing? Should be women deacons in the church. I don't get it. Why are we doing that? But interesting enough, you know, these things are never that simple. The term deacon is a very bland word, so to speak. It's a very general word for servant. In fact, Paul referred to himself as, in this term, deacon. He was a servant of the church. And so whether Phoebe was an official deacon or not, we're not sure about that. But we know that the very next thing Paul says in verse 12, he says, let deacons be the husband of one wife. And so it seems as if, if he was talking to, okay, I've talked to the male deacons, now I'm talking to the female deacons, that then he would jump back in and say, okay, now we're going to talk about being the husband of one wife. Doesn't seem to flow real logically there to be referring to female deacons. This is one of those hills I'm not prepared to die on, okay? Uh, I think different churches that try to, they're faithfully to follow Scripture can land at different places on this. Our elders, I'll tell in a minute where we've landed on this. But here's the thing. He's addressing specifically the wives of deacons for a reason. And here's why. I believe that he is, in my opinion, more than likely, that most of the time when you're going into a home and serving, and the next chapter, the next few chapters, Paul's going to talk a lot about widows and ministering to those needs. This was done as a team effort, I think. You had husbands and wives, married couples, serving together in this role, and that's why Paul references deacon's wife. So it's, it's a package deal. If you're going to serve deacon, your wife needs to meet that qualification because you're going to be ministering and serving together as a team. And you're going to be on the front lines together. This seems like the most logical way to explain this. But as I said, not a hill to die on some churches that love Jesus and try their best to be true to this word, interpret this differently. But it makes sense to me that the deacons' wives matter because so many service opportunities should involved, involve both husbands and wives should involve both husbands and wives. So say this to the deacons and, and everyone out here. Are you leading in your home? Are you working on your marriage? Are you spending time together talking about what really matters? Or do you kind of just hope that they get it here in church, your family gets it kind of, and then you go and do your stuff Monday through Saturday, and then you're back at church on Sunday? That's not the way it should be. He points to these deacons who are serving with their wives side by side, the front lines, these tough, difficult situations, marriages, widows, caring for people. And he says, wives, here's what I want. Dignified as well. Not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So is that true of you? So Paul goes to great lengths to instruct Pastor Timothy to point leaders who have outstanding character and integrity. Because what we do in the church matters. Truth. Protect 
and proclaim the truth. The church is essential to God's redemptive plans and purposes. And the church in Ephesus was in crisis. And Paul says, I need to hold to the truth. I need to remember what matters. Proclaim it. Don't get sidetracked on this other stuff. And then I love how he brings it all together. In fact, there's three different sections of this book. If you watch the Bible Project video, it does a beautiful job of pointing that out. Three different sections of this book, and each sec- section ends with a hymn or a poem. And this is the end of this section where we have verse 16. And it says this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Jesus, he was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nation, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. What a great, powerful, succinct statement of the gospel. Jesus came in the flesh. The Spirit vindicated. It proved he was who he said he was. He was seen of angels. He was proclaimed to the nation. His name has gone forth. And it's believed on in the world, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And he was taken up into glory. He didn't just die. He rose again and was taken up into glory. And Paul ends this section with such a beautiful proclamation of the gospel. And so in summary, leaders, we set the tone. If you're not in the word faithfully, it's hard to lead people to be faithful in the word. If you're not intentional with your family, it's hard to lead other people to be intentional with their family. If you're not setting an example of holiness in your household, Paul says you shouldn't be leading the church. What responsibility and calling we have as leaders. And deacon and elders sure aren't perfect. I'm the prime example. But we should be examples of spiritual maturity. We're growing in our love and commitment to Jesus and on our character. We should be pursuing Him in everything we do. So what's our takeaway? Head, heart, and hands. Head. Deacons are examples of the faith, but every Christian is a minister. Every one of you, regardless of how long you've been a believer, you're a minister for the faith. Deacons, you're to be examples of the faith. Heart, God's love motivates us to serve others and share the truth. It comes out of our love relationship with God. It doesn't come by mustering up the energy and strength. It comes out of our communion with Christ. And out of that communion with Christ comes a natural desire to care and love and to pursue the needs of others and to share Jesus with them. And then the hands, simply do something. I mean, how many people sit around and they think, well, once God shows me where my gifts are, or once God shows me what his calling is for my life, then I'll do it. And they sit around and they're comatose, toast, they're, 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 they're frozen, they're paralyzed, and they don't do anything. I don't know enough. I'm not equipped enough. I haven't been a Christian long enough. Do something. Get involved. The best way, we tell this to our membership classes, the best way to figure out your spiritual gift, 
jump in, start serving. And then you'll be quick to know, well, you know, that's not really me. That feels more like the, the, the best fit for me. I really feel a lot of joy in doing that. But do something. Serve the body. Care for the body. And deacons, set the example. You have the office. Set the example in service, in holiness, in life, in leading your family, in having a godly marriage. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that gives us life and truth. And God, as we today reflect upon our salvation, reflect upon our life by communion, that as we go into this time that we won't be flippant and careless as we so many times are as we approach the body of Christ in such a carefree way that we check off our list if we did church and walk by people to be serving and loving and caring for. God, help us to be people who hold the truth and share the truth because this is your church, the church of you, the living God. Jesus, the cornerstone. And Father God, I pray that our hearts will begin to be stilled and quieted right now. That we can think through and inventory our lives and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to provide conviction where necessary. Direction, encouragement.
Yeah. 